Rachel, when I've been talking to people about COVID-19, there's been a lot of confusion surrounding the different regulations put in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, definitely. When I've talked to people, I've been hearing a lot of frustration um, just in general because it feels like policies will just change back and forth. I mean, one moment we're told not to wear masks and then the next moment we're supposed to wear masks. It's really hard to handle all these changes. And it's interesting you bring this up because most scientists I talk to about the changing regulations aren't really that surprised. And I think it's because we as scientists know that the field of science can change almost daily because of new research that comes out. Exactly. And today we're going to unpack how scientific research works to give you a view into how new discoveries are made and the slow yet fast progress of science sometimes. And we'll also try to relate this back to COVID-19 so you can maybe have a better perspective of why regulations are changing so quickly. So when we think of scientific research, if you break down the word research, it means you keep searching and searching and searching and researching until you can understand something deeply. And this can be the intricacies of black holes, the secrets lying in DNA, and anywhere in between. Science is not something that you pursue and find all the answers to immediately. It's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And years and years and years, all research is built on previous research. So if you think of science as a pyramid, all of what we know about science is built on previous experiments done by people even 400 years ago. When we perform research, no matter what field you're in, you have to first understand what's been done before. So this involves reading published research, which is just collections of experiments that are put together as a story. Recently, I read a paper from the 1970s, which doesn't seem, it seems like a long time ago, but when you think that there are papers from the 1600s, it doesn't seem like that long. <laughs> but this paper helped me understand the experiments I'm doing today in 2020. Gotta love those 1970s papers. <laughs> Usually cannot control F in those, which is frustrating. That is frustrating. <laughs> but they, I feel like they write them much more clearly. So there are two main types of research. Hypothesis-driven research versus curiosity-driven research. Hypothesis-driven research is based on a hypothesis, which, as Google defines it, is a supposition proposed explanation made on the basis of limited evidence as a starting point for further investigation. So basically, you have evidence of what you think will happen, and you make a strong guess as to what will happen. Curiosity-driven research is a bit different. These sort of experiments are still based on understanding the literature, but they're more about seeing what happens if you try something. One day I could have a cool idea in the lab that I don't have a ton of evidence to know if it'll work or not, but I can try it and see if I find anything interesting. And the big difference here is I don't really have an idea of what I'll see, but I'm trying an experiment with a hunch that I could uncover something interesting. Yeah, so I know Giles' um, lab one of her uh, former colleagues had where his boss would let him do just like curiosity driven experiments like that. <laughs> that's amazing. Did he find some cool stuff? Oh yeah. Um, that's how he found that because th they work on e-cigs. That's how he found um, that cinnamaldehyde stopped cilia from beating. 
it was just like a crazy crazy. so you know curiosity um, experiments can be risky but um they can uh, turn out great sometimes anyways um for hypothesis driven research you have a strong idea of what you'll see but many times what happens in an experiment can be completely different from what you expected this is normal and contributes to why science takes so long (laughs) once you decide if you're pursuing something more hypothesis driven or an experiment for pure curiosity's sake you have to design an experiment and this is one of the most important parts of the process of science One of the first things is to hypothesize what you expect to see for different conditions of your experiment. This is where you bring in information from all that reading that you've already performed and use that information to come up with a logical hypothesis. You also come up with a potential explanation of what it means if your hypothesis is not correct. I'm a geneticist. In genetics, genes turn on and off to produce proteins, which are the building blocks of the body. One thing I do often as a geneticist is turn a gene off. I can do this by using special targeting molecules that go and target the message of a gene that could make proteins, those building blocks. Let's say I know gene A is expressed specifically during when cells grow. So perhaps it's important for cell growth. I can hypothesize based on that knowledge from the literature that if I turn off gene A, the cell I'm working on won't grow as much. But if that doesn't happen, then maybe there's another gene that's involved in cell growth and can substitute for gene A. Another thing you have to consider when designing experiments is what controls you're going to use. There are normally two types of controls, a negative and a positive control. Continuing with Emma's analogy, When you knock down genes, you dissolve these special targeting molecules in a liquid, such as alcohol. A negative control could be a condition where you just add the alcohol and not the molecules needed to knock down the gene. Ideally, the alcohol itself wouldn't have an effect on the gene because that would mean the alcohol could confound your results. Right. And when we're saying knock down here, that basically means to turn off the gene. A positive control could be a condition where you add molecule B dissolved in alcohol to target gene B, which is a well-known gene that's shown to be critical for cell growth. In this case, the positive control should show the optimal effect of inhibiting cell growth. If cell growth isn't inhibited when you knock down gene B, which many others have done and shown that it should be knocked down, then something technical might be wrong with your experimental design. Controls are so important for experimental design. If you don't have good controls, then you don't know if there's something wrong or that could be affecting your results. And you may never know until experiments that build upon those results don't tell you what you expected. And then you have to go and repeat everything over again and redesign your experiment. It's You've the wasted worst. tons of time and money. Do your controls. Controls save time. (laughs) (laughs) Once you've figured out a hypothesis and controls, then you need to decide how to measure something in the experiment. To keep our genetics lesson rolling, we can measure the amount of gene expression or the message of the gene to make proteins to see if we actually turned off that gene. Finally, you have to figure out what the experiment will tell you. It's easy to think that figuring out hypotheses, controls, and measuring something can tell you what your experiments could mean, but it actually takes time to figure that out. Part of this is based on the hypothesis, 
But the other part is thinking big picture and what your results could mean for the field that you're studying as a whole. So once you've figured all this stuff out, which is subject to change at any moment in time, (laughs) you have to actually perform the experiment. So contrary to science in the movies and media, we don't just pick up a pipette and finish the experiment right after thinking of it. The planning period actually takes quite a while and involves talking with other scientists and experts in the field to make sure that you've thought of everything. The chemicals and equipment we use are expensive, so you don't want to make so you want to make each experiment count and you don't want to waste time and effort. It's definitely an involved process. So once we're ready to perform experiments, we write out a protocol so we can follow something precisely. It's very important to write everything down, a step that went weird, the catalog numbers of reagents that you used, and sometimes even the time of day that you did something. I mean, circadian rhythm is a thing. (laughs) Uh, Some researchers even record the weather when they do experiments. Yes, exactly. I have an experiment where I have to use equipment across campus, and sometimes I have to walk with the muscle cells that I grow in the rain, the winter, the summer, and it's like a 15-minute walk. Anyways, once you want to publish your research, you have to go back to your lab notebooks and check out the details of your experiments. This can be done years later after you perform the experiment, so it's not like you're going to remember one little step from two years ago. Right now, I'm actually putting data together for a paper with data that I generated over two years ago. I was new in the lab two years ago and didn't record things as well as I should have, so it's taken me much more time now to write up my results than if I wrote more down in the first place. Oh, we've all been there. (laughs) Performing experiments can take different amounts of time depending on what you do. Most experiments I do take about a week or so, but it takes three months to grow some of the cells that I need for them. So you can imagine that I have to plan these experiments very carefully because I don't want to waste months of my life. (laughs) Emma, how long do your experiments typically take? They normally take about two weeks to do and then a few weeks later to process. Wow, that's also a significant amount of time. So if you mess up, you could be set back a whole month. Oh yeah, completely. But after you finish your experiment, you're ready to begin analyzing the results. You try and make sure all the experiments that you do can be quantified with numbers in some way because you want to, at the end of the day, use statistics to analyze your experiments. Analyzing results looks different depending on the experiment, but normally all analysis somehow ends up in Excel or a similar program. In Excel or other programs like JMP, Prism, or even coding languages like R, you can use the analyzed results to create graphs, scatter plots, pie charts, anything visual to help you explain your results. Actually, I just spent yesterday um, teaching myself how to code in R because I usually am lazy and use Prism, which is very user-friendly. You just put in your data and it spits out beautiful graphs. (laughs) We've thought about getting Prism licenses in the lab, but we're kind of like, we don't want to pay. So we just kind of use R and Excel. Oh, Prism is amazing. I mean, but it's very good. It's good experience to know how to use R as I'm frustratingly learning right now. Um, because All about Googling. That's literally R in any coding language. Just learn how to Google. Oh my God. Yeah. I was on Google all day yesterday. Mm-hmm. Just Googling everything. <laughs> and so many error messages. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
So once you've generated some graphs, depending on what program you use, you can begin interpreting your results. And this involves going back to your hypothesis and seeing what your data looks like in terms of your hypothesis. If your data looks like it's following your hypothesis, then maybe it's time to repeat your experiment. If the data doesn't look like it's following your hypothesis, then you could also you could still repeat your experiment to see if anything looks different or come up with a new hypothesis. When you repeat experiments, um, you have to repeat them at least three times in order to calculate statistics. Statistics are used to say if there's a significant difference between two experimental conditions. You'll read in news articles that scientists will say, oh, we found a significant difference in happiness between people who drank coffee versus not drinking coffee. And these sort of claims are based on statistics. Though we know that people who drink coffee are obviously happier. Ta-da! So let's relate what we've learned about this scientific method back to COVID-19. So we've seen how quickly everything is changing in regards to COVID-19. One minute we're told not to wear masks. Another minute we're told to wear masks. One minute we're told SARS-CoV-2 is spread on surfaces. And another minute we're told that it doesn't last on surfaces. With all this back and forth, it's really frustrating to know what to do or who to listen to. But this is why we wanted to share how the scientific method works. Hopefully you can appreciate that there's a lot that goes on and there's a lot of steps where you have to go back to the drawing board and it just takes a lot of time to do these sort of experiments. So we shared some simple examples today of experiments we do, but in the case of COVID-19, there is very little previous research to build off of because scientists are dealing with a whole new virus. I mean, in the case of COVID-19, which is caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-2 looks similar to the original SARS virus, but there's still a lot of differences. And since this virus is new, it means it's much more difficult to design experiments, but it's also harder to figure out how the results fit in with the larger picture, since there isn't that large of a picture for studying this virus. Scientists are studying SARS-CoV-2 in different labs, with different methods, coming up with different hypotheses, and analyzing data differently. They're also accelerating the science to try and publish their findings for other researchers to build off of and to make that picture a little bit bigger. And as we've seen with SARS-CoV-2 so far, the more we've learned, the faster things have changed. And this is because epidemiologists and other science leaders are trying to understand the vast amount of data coming out of SARS-CoV-2 and situate that in terms of the bigger picture to know what to tell the general population. Science is not always clear-cut. It can be messy and confusing to interpret. It's not uncommon for two groups to study the same thing and come up with different results based on different hypotheses. Also, scientists are still human, and the pace of research is incredibly fast for COVID-19. We strive for rigor and reproducibility. However, sometimes when things move this quickly, Important controls are left out, or experiments aren't always repeated three separate times, and this can lead to more confusion. And we have seen some of this happen in the case of SARS-CoV-2. There's different kind of review processes going on for uh, research about COVID-19, just because they're trying to push research through quickly. And there have been some mistakes that have been made, and people have had to own up to those mistakes. But they've had the science community looking over their things and checking over it to call them out on those things if that happens. And I know I have felt that I haven't been able to keep up with all the research about COVID-19, and I'm also not a virologist by training. 
research about SARS-CoV-2 is speeding along and we're learning new things every day. And the WHO and the CDC are looking at these new articles and are trying to make recommendations. And they're not perfect, but they are making strong efforts to keep people safe. That's right. So we recognize as scientists that we don't know everything and we're relying on the experts in the field to make decisions about how we should respond. People seem to expect that scientists should know everything about SARS-CoV-2, but they just began to study it, what was it, in January? Yeah, it's been six months on a whole new virus. It's, you got to give them some slack. (laughs) But going back to masks, there's been a lot of confusion about this topic specifically. And just to clarify, many of you probably know this, but masks are not meant to protect you from contracting the virus unless you have a very specific kind of mask, the N95. But most of the masks, the cloth masks, the surgical masks, those are actually meant to prevent you from spreading the virus to other people. Although it is a great reminder to not touch your face because, as we all know, we touch our faces all the time. Oh my God, I'm doing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) I've also heard people mention that the WHO and the CDC differ on their views regarding masks. So currently, as of... 5-12 on May 30th, 2020. <laughs> the WHO does not recommend wearing a mask unless you have COVID-19 or are caring for someone that does. And if you think of the target audience of the WHO, they are making recommendations for the entire world population. And the CDC is making recommendations for the U.S. And the CDC is recommended for us in the U.S. to wear masks. Most people in the U.S. can gain access to a cloth mask, and this may not be the case in less developed countries. Also, the incidence of cases in the U.S. is much worse compared to other countries, so it makes sense for it makes sense to treat everyone like they're infected here in the U.S. The odds are just higher. And for us at the university, we're, we are required to wear masks because we're treating everyone at the university as if they're infected, so that way we can minimize the spread. Finally, This is a really hard time, and everyone is just going to handle the situation differently. I keep trying to tell myself that (laughs) Um, to understand when people don't, you know, react to it how I would. Um, For those not wearing masks, try to understand that they have their reasons. Wearing masks can be really hot and uncomfortable and make it hard to breathe, and nobody wants to do it. Uh, Plus, certain individuals with underlying health conditions actually might not be able to wear a mask. And Emma and I were chatting a little bit before um, we started recording that, you know, wearing a mask inappropriately might be worse than not wearing one at all. (laughs) Um, So there are some negatives. But for those people that are wearing masks, try to understand their side of it, too, and that um, they're trying to prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2. 